The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 14. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you'll be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who if your child asks for bread will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish will give a snake? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for all that you're doing among us. And we invite you to come and speak to us through your word. Stir our hearts as we respond to your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, This month, we wanted to have a focus on uh, revival. And uh, yesterday, we released some stuff online, um, sort of uh, loads of stuff about revival. It's kind of conference material, um, but just made available free online. So uh, look at the YouTube channel, you'll find it there. And um, in that kind of vein, uh, James asked me, he said, Jim, what I'd love you to do on Sunday is just... Give us the best you have on revival. And I'm like, great, what a fun thing to do. And in exploring it and in just thinking it through, the Lord's taken me on a sort of slightly unexpected journey. But it does connect with revival and it's vital and important uh, to revival. So I wanted to look at something this morning uh, that connects with that. And uh, the reading gives a massive hint as to what that might be. So, I wanted to start first of all by 
recognizing the fact that we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous sermon of, you know, a summary of the, the most extraordinary teaching probably ever. And uh, the, I've heard somebody say um, in, in our church family before that they didn't think that this passage was addressed to all the people, but it was to the disciples. And I just want to hit that very quickly. So if we go to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which starts in Matthew chapter 5, it says this, verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And some people have understood this to mean, because Jesus was, was with a crowd immediately before that, that he went up the mountain to get away from the crowd, and then the disciples came from the crowd and joined him. But that doesn't make sense for two main reasons. The first is, when there's a crowd around Jesus, they stay with Jesus. We read it everywhere in the Gospels. When Jesus tries to get away from a crowd, you remember the time there's a crowd, he gets in a boat to try and get away from the crowd. And what do the crowd do? Jesus gets on the boat and goes to the other side of the, the lake and the crowd run round the outside and catch up because they're desperate for more. Jesus can't just get away from crowds. And if he, if he went up the mountain, they went with him. But the other thing is this, Jesus sat down and sitting down for a rabbi means they're about to teach. And so he sits down and it says, uh, uh, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. So some people say, well, that's just to, this, to the disciples because they went up uh, joined him uh, in the place. But... Jesus then gives all this incredible teaching. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says this. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So when Jesus finishes teaching, the crowds are amazed because he was teaching them. This passage, this um, chapter, these chapters in Matthew's gospel are for us all. They were for the whole people of God. They're not to an elect few. Okay, so let's just recognize that first of all. This is for you and I, and that's where we're starting. I wonder how many times... Uh, you have found yourself or I have found myself um, analysing somebody's behaviour. It's so easy to do, isn't it? I think of one time, this is a slightly old story, uh, but for some reason I remember it. About 10 years ago, uh, Dolly and I, with uh, I think at the time we just had Samuel, uh, we went on holiday and we stayed in this hotel uh, down in Cornwall that overlooked the beach at Morgan Porth. And the, the, there's an incredible view. And we went and had this, um, uh, this meal. Uh, I don't know what time of day. It was probably breakfast. And, uh, you know, all the tables were sort of 
in front of this incredible window overlooking the bay. Just a stunning morning, sky blue, sun beaming down, an August morning. It was beautiful. And there we were, and we, th- we were thinking, let's get a, a great table with a massive view. And we got as near to the window as we could. Uh, just near us, there was a lady in her, probably in her late 60s, early 70s, who was the grandmother of a sort of family who were uh, on the holiday at the same time. And she chose to sit in the, uh, uh, on her table with her back to the window facing the room so she could see everyone. And I found myself, think what you will of this, I found myself going, what on earth is she doing? Why would you choose to not have the view? And I found myself thinking, she wants to feel in control. And this isn't good, right? This is not great. I found myself thinking all this bad stuff about her. It must be that she has an issue with control. She wants to uh, know where the waiters are. She wants to know where all the people are in the room. Maybe, though, maybe she wanted her family to have the great view. Why couldn't I think of that? Maybe she chose to give up that beautiful view so that her children and her grandchildren could enjoy it. But that wasn't going through here. Uh Uh-uh. For me, I was looking at all the stuff that wasn't great. Maybe you relate. Maybe you're far more holy than me and you don't. I don't know. But I came away from that moment recognizing what on earth am I doing? But guess what? I still do it. What is it about our kind of human psyche that wants to think the worst of others? It's so easy to push into stuff that we don't really want to push into, to act in ways that we can't see. And in the passage today, it really hits this, doesn't it? Jesus is pretty explicit. Let's have a look. Judge not that you not be judged, he says. Verse uh, verse 1. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That is punchy. Because Jesus is talking about how kind of heaven responds, how the Father responds to judgment. So if we find ourselves caught in judgmental attitudes, that is the way that it it, it comes kind of back to us is what Jesus is saying here. That there is a get out clause, but that's what is in here. So how we treat others, which Jesus says a little bit later, doesn't he, um, is how effectively how we will be treated. Uh, Let's go a little bit further. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Now, I don't know why Jesus uses that imagery. He was a carpenter, right? Maybe he's just had lunch with mum and dad. Uh, Maybe he saw them at the weekend or the week before. And he goes past dad's workshop and he sees all the pile of logs. And just it 
it triggers his thinking. Uh, that happens to all of us, right? We see something in the natural, and often it might make us think of something in the spiritual. I don't know what the reason is that he chooses this. Maybe on the mountain there's a pile of logs. Perhaps someone's been chopping some trees down. I have no idea. But the imagery is pretty helpful. Why would we consider the speck in someone else's eye, tiny, tiny little thing, when there's a blinking great log in front of ours? And I have this thing that one of the things that causes us to sort of operate in a, a, you know, a judgmental attitude is because we can't see. Because we're blind to a different reality. Which is like the log which Jesus is talking about, right in front of our own eyes. And it stops us from seeing into our own mess. And this is kind of where I want to sort of take things today. You might be thinking, I thought you were going to be speaking about revival. But this connects in such a big way because revival, you know, we have different ideas of what it is. So we might think of revival as the whole world falling on their faces before Jesus, going, yay, woo, Uh, we love Jesus, we recognize he's the king of kings, whatever that is. I think that's awakening, and it's awesome. Um, Awakening is those outside the church recognizing and waking up to the reality of God, the reality of Jesus, the reality of the gospel, and coming in droves to it. And that's awesome and exciting, and sometimes some of us will call that revival. I think a more accurate description is awakening. In order for there to be revival, something's got to be revived, right? So it's, it's this, to me, a sense of, well, the church can be revived because we should know better and we've got this relationship with God, this connection with God. But when we lose track of things, we need a revival in our hearts. We, we need a revival in our spirits, don't we, to fully embrace the kingdom and to see it materialize in every way that we hope. And so we think of this language of revival, which is so exciting because we want people free. We want people to have a full expression and a full experience of the kingdom. We want that. I want that for myself. I want it for my friends in the room today. I want it for all of us in the church family. And I want it for those outside of our church family, whether they're in another church family or whether they don't know Jesus at all. That is the sort of things we think about in revival, the the bursting forth of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world, transforming the culture of this world so the culture of this world begins to look like the culture of heaven, which is what we are all about. But of course, that exciting stuff is, is... It's so wonderful and so great to celebrate. And when we see uh, that sort of stuff happening, when we see the kingdom of heaven breaking into our world or breaking into our environment, and we see somebody in front of us um, who's injured or sick or whatever it is uh, get healed, it's so exciting. I heard a little testimony, a family testimony of a girl who wasn't sleeping great who had to have some earplugs put in. She had no faith in God, not really. Um, but her, her mum uh, was a, a Christian. And, 
and she says to the daughter, hey, let's, let's pray. Let's, let's pray to God that your ears don't hurt, that you sleep really well because you hadn't been sleeping well. So they pray, and the mum goes in in the next morning, and the daughter says, Mum, my ears don't hurt. I, I slept really well. It's awesome. I can't believe that God did that for me. And from going from a place of not having any kind of connection with God, she's gone to a place of going, he cares about me? And that's just awesome, isn't it? A simple, beautiful story of a family experience of the kingdom of God breaking in to the life of a young girl. Beautiful. And, you know, and we hear stories like this all the time, which is so exciting. But the problem we experience so often, and the world or the church has experienced time and time again, if you look at the history of revivals, is these incredible things, these moves of God happen. And then humans come along and go, and they mess it all up because relationships break down. I don't want to give specific examples, but I know of one example uh, where revival broke out um, in the States and uh, it, was, it was really exciting. I went out there, I got a massive um, encounter with God all about his holiness and, and being free from the power of sin and, and lifted into a place of freedom and joy and all of that it was awesome. But, you know, two, three years into that move of God, the two top guys in uh, kind of leading that revival uh, ended up fra- with a fractured relationship and the whole thing fell apart. And it's almost like the move of God just lifted off. Now... God is on the move here in our parish. He's on the move in Chanctuary. He's on the move in loads of other places as well, which is super exciting. But we need and want to position ourselves so that that move of God, just like James said earlier, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit landed upon him and remained. You know, it says that in John's gospel, doesn't it? Just like that, we want what God is doing here to stay, to grow and to increase. And we don't want to taint it. We don't want to mess it up with our own insignificance or our own issues or our own stuff that isn't redeemed. And so we are, you know, looking at this stuff. I'm looking at this stuff going, how do we apply this? How do we enable this to go to the core of our being so that my judgment, my issues don't ruin and mess up what God is doing? So that my relationship with James Decas and with Lou Decas doesn't fall apart in two, three, four, five, six, seven, whatever years time that God has us working together. Could be lifetime, yeah, never apart. That it will never go sour because we have the strength of character and the, the joy of heart to, to pursue friendship and connection, to pursue the things of God without judging each other and without second guessing each other and all that stuff. There's so much of it. It is so easy to become pharisaical. You know, um, there's a, a famous song. I, I don't know it very well. Sung by kids. I think it's an American song. But um, 
at some of the line, it goes something like this. It goes, I don't want to be a Pharisee, because the Pharisee's not fair, you see. Something like that. And then there's another line, and it goes, I don't want to be a Sadducee, because the Sadducees are sad, you see. And it's true. It's, it's a, a funny song that's designed to say, I want to follow God. I want to be a sheep, is uh, I think the chorus. And we want to follow him, but we don't want to get to a place with the zeal that the Lord places in us, the zeal for his kingdom, the zeal for all that's good. We don't want that to, to land in a place of um, unredeemed character. So that the zeal becomes a weapon to use against the people of God. And it's so easy to fall into it. Which is why Jesus addresses judgment here. It's what he's going after. So he's saying, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You know, Jesus is saying, how can you say to your brother, let me help with a speck in your own eye? It's not like a, he's angry. He's like, come on, guys. There's a flipping log in front of you. Deal with that. Look Inwards, look at your own junk. Don't worry about the junk of other people. That's my job. Now, uh, that's not to say there's no place for going to our brothers and sisters in the Lord if, if there is mess. But boy, do we have to do it with humility in our hearts. Boy, do we have to do it knowing that we are no better. We don't want these great big tree trunks in front of us that stop us from seeing the junk that's in our lives. Because what we really want, I think we can all agree, is we want to see the kingdom of God explode in our midst. We want to see every miracle that we've read in the scriptures and more. We want to see... Hundreds and thousands and millions turning to Jesus and realizing the joy of the kingdom. That's what we want to see. But the danger is that I might mess it up. And that's not a pride thing to say, you know, God is not bigger than my sin. Of course he is. But what, why on earth would I want to get in the way? You know, why would I allow the behavior of others to determine how I treat them. It's so easy to become a Pharisee. You know, um, I have a bunch of friends who, uh, you know, and I've been there myself. Um, I I can think, it's better if I focus this on me. I I I can think of times where I, I, I... would be so zealous for the truth of God's word that I would treat people without love. I would treat people without kindness. 
I would treat people without gentleness because I'd be so keen to show the truth of Scripture, to show the truth that Jesus might have said or that Paul might have said, and to bring people into an encounter with his truth, that through doing it, I was just a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal because love wasn't the operative kind of mode of transport, if you like. It it didn't come from the right place. My hunger to be right or for the person to experience what was right got in the way of not only my relationship with them, but my relationship with God. And I, I failed to see that in my zealousness for the truth... I was just acting like a Pharisee. And you know, when Jesus says um, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be like a Pharisee, the, the, the people that heard that would have seen the Pharisees not like we see them today. They would have seen the Pharisees as the most upright, uh, godly people in their community. Their idea of the Pharisee was, I need to move and be more like the Pharisee. It was like something to aspire to. And Jesus flipped that idea on its head because, of course, the Pharisees, in their zealousness, were so keen for living in a righteous way that they started creating their own customs that were outside of Scripture to show how hungry they were to live the truth. But, of course, what happened was religion got in the way of the relationship. And so Jesus spins it on his head and he says, do not be like them. And then he sets up six things, saying to the people of God, this is what I want you to be like. Every single one of them, impossible. Impossible. And he does it on purpose. Because we cannot live the standard. Because we need a saviour. That's not to say we can't aspire to it. But we are going to mess it up. We're going to get it wrong, aren't we? I don't want to go into that. But the point being, it's, it's almost hardwired into the way things work. That we can't be perfect. And here's, here's a real thing that for me has been a huge journey. Um, and it hits me every single time I come across what I would perceive to be judgment of God's people um, or judgment on the world um, or judgment on certain behaviors um, that don't fit with my kind of uh, interpretation of living for Jesus. And when I see it, I cannot help but recognize this truth. And it's really simple. It's, I have nothing to give that he did not give me. Matt Redman wrote a song called, um, Breathe, I think it's called Breathing a Breath. It's called something like that. And it goes, we have nothing to give that didn't first come from you, Lord. We have nothing to offer you that you did not provide. Every good, perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart and all we do is give back to you what always has been yours. And it captures that sense of 
I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give that he did not provide. And therefore, I have no reason, no grounding, no foundation to become a holier-than-thou, to become a, how can you live that way? Because probably I used to. You know, God comes along, doesn't he, and brings a revelation to our hearts. And it, it, when we have that revelation, it changes something inside of us. It changes our lives. And it becomes, hopefully, a standard that we attain to. The problem is, when we've had that journey, we then expect others to maintain that standard too. But they've not been on that journey. They've been on their journey. And it's different to our journey. Um, where am I going to go now? Let me have a sip. I have nothing to offer that didn't first come from him. There is no holiness, righteousness, godliness that I can celebrate by my own accord. The reason I am able to look like the Father, the reason I am able to look like Jesus at points in my life, hopefully more often than not, is simply because of the fact that Jesus went to that cross. And one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us that we don't have what it takes. Because Jesus was pointing to the cross saying, you need me. You need me to pay the price for your inability to live to God's standards. It's what the whole law was for. To show us we can't do it. And we can only get close to accomplishing perfection. Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the ultimate impossibility, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Kind of not possible this side of heaven, is it? We aspire to it, yes, of course, and we seek to live that way. But boy, do we need to just shine the spotlight on the junk in our hearts to open the door and say, Lord, show me where I'm a Pharisee. Show me where my behavior doesn't align with the kingdom of God. It's so easy to be a Pharisee. You know, I've just started, uh, because of where the Lord was taking me, I've had this book for a while, but I've never read it. Someone recommended it to me. It's by Larry Osborne, and it's called Accidental Pharisees. And the, the tagline on the back is, Is it possible to be too zealous for God? And it's, it covers the whole concept of the beautiful zealousness that we experience, because you know when the Holy Spirit comes and we get that hunger for revival, hunger for the truth, hunger for all of the kingdom... But when it goes out of kilter or it lands on, you know, the language chair one and chair two, chair one, when we're fully in father's embrace, we know fully, I know fully who I am as his son and my behavior looks like his, chair one, you know, there's nothing out of kilter. But there's this jump that happens between chair one and chair two, which is chair two, I'm still a believer, I'm still a Christian, I'm still aspiring to live like him, but I'm not receiving from my Father in heaven. It's that whole sonship thing. And 
Um, and accidental Pharisees really touches on some of that stuff. And uh, it's about avoiding pride and exclusivity um, and sort of other dangers of overzealousness. So if you want to go further with this or you want something to challenge you in how do I get rid of this zealousness, not zealousness, how do I get rid of this pharisaical behavior, that's a good one to read. I was having a conversation with a friend the other night. We were having a drink in the garden, being well behaved under regulations. And uh, I forget who said it to who first, but I think one of us said, you know, I really struggle with the fact that I'm such a Pharisee. And uh, whoever said it, it was him or I, I forget which way around it was. The other one of us agreed for ourselves, not for them, yeah, you're such a Pharisee. But for, for ourselves, like, yeah, I totally get it, mate. I am such a Pharisee, and I hate the fact that I see this stuff inside. But there's a beauty to that, isn't there? Because when I see it, the, the log is over there. And, and actually, I can see the, the judgment that I put on people. I can see the sort of vile behavior that doesn't align with the kingdom, where I think I know better. And here's the thing that most of us do. We judge people, or we, um, we might not want to use the word judge, we understand people by their actions, and we process people's behavior by what they do, but we don't do that with ourselves. We judge our behavior by our intentions, and we know what we were thinking. We know what we're thinking, and we know why we did something the way that we did it, and we judge ourselves on that truth, the truth of why we did something. It might be good, it might be bad, that's irrelevant to this point. The point is that we judge our behavior based on the reality of what we think in that moment. But typically, we don't extend that grace to other people in our lives. So someone might do something that to us looks offensive or wrong, or why on earth would they do that? And we start to process, this is the danger of over-processing behaviors of others. Because when we start to process it and think about what they did, it's so easy for the Pharisee in us to go, woo! I'm going to make myself feel better about myself. I would never behave like that. I just wouldn't operate in that way. Well, let's just bring that log right back in front of our face, shall we? So what's the answer? I hope you're tracking with me and that I'm not alone in this and that, you know, uh, me sharing this stuff, you know, I, I'm quite happy for you to see my junk because there's plenty of it. But... Um, I, my hope and my prayer is that somehow this is positioning us for what God is com what is coming. You know, I think nationally there's a shaking going on. Uh, there's a shaking in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, the shaking of the lockdown and what that might mean. And now we're, you know, as of yesterday, coming out of lockdown in a more easy way. But, you know, Leicester's gone back into lockdown. You know, what does that mean? Are we going to end up going back into lockdown fully again? There's a shaking. We're just emerging from something, hopeful, excited, that we can regather as congregations because the government have said we can. There are limits on that. 
the, the, the advice has only come out and we're about to just work on that and see what that might mean for us moving forward. How can we regather? What would it look like? How are we going to make that work? Um, so that's all to come out. So, you know, we'll tell you when we get there. Be soon. But, you know, uh, something's going on. But there's a shaking, isn't there? This whole period of time, the last uh, three and a half months, has been a real shaking. But there's other stuff going on. For some of us, that shaking is really real. We don't know if we're holding on to our jobs. I, I, I had some interaction with someone literally yesterday and this week um, about they're going to lose their job. And their job comes with a house. And they're, they're going to lose their house. And it's happening much sooner than they were anticipating. Because they're, you know, the organization they work for is having to cull because of the pandemic. And this is happening all over the country. There'll be others of you, I'm sure, going through a similar experience. Or, you know, work might be drying up. Income streams might be drying up. There's all that stuff. It's a shaking. It's not comfortable. We don't like it. In our own church, we're having to respond to this pandemic by delivering church in a new way. It's a shaking. Um, in our own, you know, congregation, we're, we are... In the process, since you know November, we came to the church family and said, hey, we need to position ourselves for what God is doing. What does it mean? We had that month of discernment. We've gone through a number of processes. And we, we are needing to, to do some things that will, you know, might not be understood by everyone. Maybe there's a shaking going there because we... As everybody knows, we do need to restructure things to position us well for whatever God is going to do and however he's going to grow things. It's one of the reasons we're doing that survey. There's a shaking going on and we feel uncomfortable with it. But what happens, what behavior comes out when we're squeezed? Are you an orange or a lemon? You know, what I mean by that is when you take a lemon and you squeeze it, the juice that comes out is bitter and sour and you don't want to drink it. Some people might like the sharpness and, you know, might, we might mix it into a salad, a salad dressing or, you know, a cocktail or, I don't know, whatever it is, that, however you like to use lemons. Make some fresh lemonade, pump loads of sugar into it, make it beautiful. But the, the juice itself is sour and it's bitter. But you squeeze an orange and you can just drink that juice because it's sweet and tasty if you like oranges. You know, what comes out when we're squeezed? What comes out when we're being shaken? What, what does our behavior look like when we're scared? You know, my worst behavior, my, my worst stuff comes out when I'm worried or anxious about something. And I, I, my life starts to look like something that I think I'm not. I, I, if I start to experience anxiety, that is an, an instant indicator to me that I'm not sitting on chair number one. I'm believing a lie about me or about God or about somebody else, and it's causing anxiety. Anxiety is always rooted in lies. And, and so I need to sort of work out what that is to get back onto that chair of receiving the Father's love in undiluted form. And so... Um, what comes out when we're anxious? Because typically when we're anxious, that's when the judgments come. Someone might say something that we theologically disagree with 
and that might make us feel like we're on shaky ground. So we want to close down, control the environment to protect our own beliefs. Very dangerous, very pharisaical. So what does Jesus say? I haven't got to that. Ask, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. This is in the context of judgment, okay? We often take this passage out of context. It comes immediately after Jesus saying, remove the plank from before your eyes. And then he says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and what? You will find. You'll find the stuff that you need to deal with. But often we take this scripture so away from its context, don't we? We forget the bit that goes before that Jesus is actually talking about, which is judgment. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks for this plank to be removed receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. To me, that says, if I come to the Lord with my junk or this plank that I have and say, Father, I know that I am, um, I've got all this mess in my life. I know that I am judging people. I know that my behavior is not aligned with the kingdom. Help me see that the door will be opened and I will be able to see more clearly um, what I need to see so that my life can begin to look more like him. And then he goes on. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? So let's, in this context, bread is, Lord, show me the mess in my life. If I ask Jesus or the Father to show me the mess in my life, why would he act like a scorpion? You know, that's from Luke, isn't it? But why would he give me a stone, something that's not bread? Why would the interaction of asking him to open up the, the bad stuff in my heart, why would it take me to a deep, dark place? It won't, because he's my loving father. Or, uh, if I ask for a fish, will my father give me a serpent? Well, of course he won't. Because he loves me. And when my kids come to me, which doesn't happen very much, probably because of their age, and say, Daddy, what junk can you see in my life? Um, you know, I'm not going to be angry with that question, am I? I'm going to be, hey, what, what, why are you asking? What do you actually want to know? And I want to lead them through a process to find out what actually is going on in their heart so that I can help them into a better place. Me, though I am not the father, if that's my response to my kids, how much more is it for my father in heaven? You know, this is the context. And so often we take these out. So, Jesus goes on, verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's called the golden rule. Treat others as you want to be treated. When someone behaves in a certain way, whatever it is, they cut you up in the street. I struggle with that one if I'm driving. Um, 
you know, your thing might be really different. It might be that someone doesn't do their washing up in your household. Um, it might be that the kids are leaving their toys all over the place. It might be that your brother and sister is playing with your stuff without asking. I, I don't know what stuff kind of gets you wound up um, or, or gets you not, not kind of behaving in the best, most loving way. Whatever those things are. In those environments, treat those people who do those things that wind you up, treat them as you want to be treated. How would I want somebody to treat me? I would like them to think, you know what, Jim is a good guy. He, uh, he's hopefully, you know, they would think I'm kind, you know, that I'm generous, um, that my behavior looks uh, a bit like the fruits of the Spirit. And so hopefully that would be the filter through which they would anticipate and understand what I've done. Rather than go, how on earth could he do that? Without coming to me and asking me, why, what was that all about? Or what's happened there? Here's where it really hits. When we take offense with the things that people do and we bury them down... Or we bury them down and just let them, you know, uh, stew away in our spirit, in our heart, in our soul. Um, They start to get uglier and uglier and bigger and bigger, right? When we then, in the name of processing, talk to others and bring others into that problem, we're, we're on very thin ice, And there is a place to do that, because if we're stuck and we need help, then we're stuck and we need help. And so, but the way that we need to go about it is from the place of how we would want someone to do it for us. So that our modus operandi is love. A couple of, I'm going to wrap up really soon, but let's just quickly look. You know this scripture so well, Galatians 5. Um, let me just turn there it says uh, it says this really really well known Jesus gives a load of uh, sorry Paul gives a load of um, examples of bad behaviour to the Galatian church And then when we pick up uh, chapter 5, halfway through verse 21, he then says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says the bit we all know. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Isn't that beautiful? You know, often I think we miss that bit. Against such things, against joy, there's no law. Do it whenever you want. Against love, there is real love. There is no law. You know, I'm talking about pure love there, as Paul is. Um, Against gentleness, there is no law. It's always all right. It's always okay to operate with gentleness. It's always okay to operate with kindness. There's no law against kindness. 
There's law against hatred, but there's no law against kindness. There's no law against goodness or fruitfulness or gentleness. There's no law against self-control. Because these are the things that determine our behavior. These are the things that ensure our behavior looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and whatever the one is I've left out. Left out. You know, against those is no law. Um, another, um, a- another scripture, just a couple, just to you know, get us thinking like this. Two Timothy two. Um, my eyes have gone a bit blurry. I put my glasses on. Two Timothy two. So um, Timothy just becomes before Hebrews. If you're flicking, um, there. Before Titus, right, 2 Timothy, uh, I'm still in Titus, here we are, 2 Timothy 2 verses 24 and 25, this is about a, a worker of the kingdom who's been approved by God, okay, that's the context, verse 24, 2 Timothy 2 verse 24, and the Lord's servant, that's the worker, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Interesting. Explore that. What does that mean? Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Okay, that's really all I wanted to, to go for there. It's, um, it's about that gentleness. Or Philippians, Philippians 4 verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. This is the call. And it's the thing that will ensure that when, you know, the revival that we are in, because I think we are in a revival, early stages, whatever, we're in a move of God because revival is just, it's what we are, it's what we're called to, it's not a thing that happens, it's life with God, that's revival. When that kind of escalates and more and more happens, we need to be those people who live from gentleness And from all those fruits of the Spirit. Because if we don't, the whole thing will collapse. It will come falling down. The history of past revivals is that relationships cause them to fall apart. And so we have to be zealous in our pursuit of gentleness. In our pursuit of um, living the most kind we can. The most loving we can. It doesn't mean being a doormat, but it does mean operating from those things. And, and, and gentleness and patience. And it's not easy. And that's what we're going to finish with now. Because Jesus goes on to say, guys, you might think that what I'm asking you to do is really difficult. And then he just adds to it by saying, Uh, I'm in the wrong place, sorry. And then he says, enter by the narrow gate. Verse 13. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Quick unpack. The gate that leads to destruction, the gate that leads to judgmentalism and pharisaical behavior is easy and wide. Any one of us can go there at any time. It is not difficult. It's a battle to not go that way. 
the wide is the, the sorry the the way the gate is widely open and it's an easy path to go down but Jesus says enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many but verse 14 for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. This is about judgment. That's the context. I believe it's multi-layered, and I believe we can point it to the gospel itself, Jesus. But the context is judgment. And Jesus here is saying the, the, the behavior of judgmentalism and pharisaical likeness is easy to do, but not doing that is difficult. It's a narrow path and few find it. So here's the big question. Are you one of the few or are you one of the many? I pray with all my heart that I am one of the few that finds the narrow path, that aligns myself to that narrow path where my treatment of others looks like Jesus looks like the fruit of the Spirit, looks like what Paul says to every one of us. It's not about being a, a weak little so-and-so with no authority. It's about using the authority that we carry with that mindset. One last thought as we close is this. When I feel out of sorts, when I feel like I'm not hitting the target in my faith. Um, the one thing that really seems to unlock that and get me to the right place is worship. Because suddenly I stop thinking about me and what's going on internally. I focus on him and what he is doing and who he is. And then I start to realize who I am. And suddenly I feel alive again. And I've got my kind of, you know, mojo back. Probably the wrong word, but you know what I mean. So, let's close in prayer. Um, this is so important. If we want to see crazy out-and-out -out revival, our character has got to match the works of God that are done amongst us. So let's be people that remove that plank from our own eyes, that focus more on our own junk and take it to the Lord than focusing on our perceived weaknesses of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus, you know, he, he didn't soften his blows here. He was strong and clear. And we want to be the people of God who Jesus was aiming to equip and affirm through the Sermon on the Mount. That Paul was aiming to direct as he brought us his teaching on the fruit of the Spirit and as he spoke in, uh, you know, as he wrote in, in Philippians about our gentleness being evident to everyone, whether they're believers or not. Lord, may I not be the Pharisee I so dread May I be the one whose behavior 
looks like Jesus. And I pray for each one of us, however we're tuning in today, that for us we would walk the narrow path of choosing to withhold judgment, of choosing to believe the best, and of choosing to process other people's behavior through what, you know, uh, you know, how we would process our own. Not that we beat ourselves up, but that we recognize where our lives don't align with you and we set our faces like flint to the truth, to Jesus, that our, you know, our way out through worship, being reminded of who you are so that we're reminded of who we are, so that we can behave in ways that look like our Father in heaven. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If if you want some, uh, if you've been listening to this and you know perhaps wasn't what you're expecting, no issues, great. But if you're wanting some um, stuff to sort of further thinking about revival, please do look on the YouTube channel for the conference on revival. Uh, we've got some great um, guest speakers, people that some of us know, some of you will know. Um, as well as maybe some that we don't and one or, few, one or two home team as well. So um, there's plenty of stuff there. Do have a look. Um, get inspired. Um, and in this season, let's you know, continue just to pursue him um, in our households, on our own. As the shaking happens, let's set our faces towards him. Uh, bless you all. Have an incredible week and we'll see you soon.